hope I'm not going to ruin this. All right. Very good. All right, I'm just going to bring this a little front and center. Um, while I'm doing this, I wanted to actually um, share a little bit of a confession. I came across this quote that I thought was quite apropos. I wanted to share with you this confession time. You're going to be my therapist for just a few moments, if that's okay. What are you doing, you man? And I added woman in there because, period, because. Um, with the word of God upon your lips, upon what grounds do you assume the role of mediator between heaven and earth? Who has authorized you to take your place there and to generate religious feeling? By Karl Barth. Um, as we enter into 2019, we are here again. You've decided to take some time out of your schedule to come and be with us. Today I'm going to share with you just how critical and important and valuable that is. But part of what we do is we share, we talk. Uh, those of us who are on the team, we do our best to study and to share with you teachings and ideas and context and history that will hopefully make our congregation better. And this quote by Karl Barth just kind of put, set a reset button for me. And I just wanted to share with you that I... Uh, get excited about sharing, no doubt, but there's also this sense of reverence and holiness about what this activity is. And consider that any one of us, we are just like one another. We are all equal. We are all created in the image of God. We're all just people. We're all just men and women. And some of us have been charged or have been called to share ideas, reflections upon the Word of God. And this quote just kind of set me, reset me, and humbled me and said, recognize the reverence and the power and the responsibility of what it is that you're doing. So I just wanted to share that with you in 2019 as I started thinking about the teachings that are coming for this year. It is a very humbling experience to do this year after year. Um, but it's also, uh, I wanted to share that also as an invitation to all of you, that as we who are teaching and bringing teachings to Spark, we are active, obviously, participating in wanting to share the thoughts and the ideas that we have. But this also means that you are also active, too. This reminds me that this is actually a partnership. Because it's not just about the person who stands up here. It's about all of us together journeying and walking together and learning together and growing together. Every time you ask a question, every time you have a thought, every time you may disagree, every time you bring a different perspective, you make all of us better. And so I want to just start 2019 with a little bit of a disclaimer before I get to the actual message to say thank you for participating with us in the teaching and the growing and the maturing of this congregation. And uh, it's just a beautiful thing. You are a gift. So thank you. So I want to say a quick prayer, and then we're going to get into First John, what we have to share. And my prayer is this. Dear God, may the words of our mouths and the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. First John. This is our graphic that we are using for our series of First John. It is not actually a book, even though we're going to call it a book. In fact, a lot of the things in your Bible aren't actually books. They're letters, they're narratives, they're histories. We call them books because that's the phrase that we use. However, First John is actually most likely a sermon or a teach, maybe a letter, but it's given to a particular congregation about a certain thing. And so over the next couple of weeks, we've decided to take a look at this book, this letter, this sermon, to share with our congregation. Maybe we can learn something about what 
the author of this letter, the author of this sermon, shared with his people that can be relevant for us for how we are to follow Jesus. Because you're going to see very clearly throughout this reading, throughout our teach, uh, that these people are deeply centered on the person of Jesus, who he was, how he lived, what they thought about him, and how that affected their lives. I wanted to share with you very briefly the logo. I was uh, excited about this. The eternity symbol is the backdrop, and the Greek there is zoen, which is the Greek word for life. Many of you actually might know somebody named Zoe. So this logo uh, is designed to encapsulate the idea of eternal life. I have written all of these things so that you can have life eternal. Now, we're going to get into more of what that actually means, because when we think of eternal life, we think of life that never, ever, ever ends. It's just time is ticking away, and it just goes on and on. And uh, we will see very shortly through this series that what the authors of the scriptures, when they use the word eternal, they mean something much deeper than just a ticking of a clock forever and ever and ever. So let's start our teaching in 1 John, and I'd like to share with you our first teach, which we're going to call Sarks. Everybody say Sarks. And we'll get to what that means in just a moment. 1 John chapter 1, starting in verse 1, and we'll read through verse 4. We declare to you what was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have looked at and touched with our hands concerning the word of life. This life was revealed, and we have seen it and testified and declared to you the eternal life, there's that phrase, that was with the Father and was revealed to us. We declare to you what we have seen and heard so that you also may have fellowship with us. And truly our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. We are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. There ends our opening passage of the book, the letter, the sermon of 1 John. I want you to imagine, if you can, this is going to be a hard mental exercise, but imagine, if you can, a group of people not getting along, disagreeing about central issues, and splitting over those differences. Now, I know you have no experience with this whatsoever, so you're going to have to strain yourselves to consider maybe a religious community, uh, maybe a business community, maybe even a family community. Uh, any social community, uh, a political community, not getting along. Again, I know this is hard to think about, but just strain yourself and think. People not getting along, and what they're not getting along about are central issues, most critical issues to that community, the things that are most important. And as a result of not resolving any of those differences and those struggles, they decide, I'm going my way, and you're going to go your way, and never shall we ever meet again, and I don't ever want to talk to you again. Now, so I know you can't think of anything like this, but I want to share with you that this is exactly the context for the setting of First John. Back in the first century, after this movement of Jesus began to take off, people were becoming Christians almost left and right. Uh, Rodney Stark has calculated some of the numbers, and you see this pretty exponential growth year after year of the number of people that are joining this Jesus movement. And as they are joining the movement, you can imagine, just like anybody joining a community, uh, joining anything, you might have some questions as to, so what is this community really all about? What are you really teaching? What, what are you really saying? As that begins to develop and move forward into the world, as it grows in population and as people come and ask these questions, there was a central question that emerged in the first century community. And the central question, believe it or not, was, who was Jesus? Really? Now, 
that may seem like a very simple question. I mean, clearly he's the son of God. He's the Lord of Lords. He's the king of kings. He's my savior. You know, uh, he's on my bumper sticker, you know, everything like that. Don't we clearly have an answer? And what I find so fascinating about this question that the first century Christians were dealing with is we're dealing with the same question. Who really was this Jesus? And depending upon what church you go to, what theology you read, what books you listen to, what professors you may study, you might actually come up with a lot of different answers. And this question, even though it was very, very central back then, we might think, aren't we done with that question after 2,000 years? Well, I would propose to you, we're probably still wrestling with that question. And wrestling with that question is actually a wonderful thing because when you first become a Christian, you first figure out what your faith is about, there's an experience that you have, most likely. And that experience is what shapes and forms your understanding of who Jesus is. Then you join a community, and that community shares with you more and more of who that person Jesus is. And then for some of us, we decided to go to school and seminary and college, and we decided to do advanced studies, and we studied the language and the history and the context and the culture, and many students here are at Stanford, and they're taking religious courses, and they're learning even more about who Jesus is, and you're like, oh, well, what I, what I experienced about who Jesus is is maybe just a slightly different from what my church taught me who Jesus was, and which is even maybe even more slightly different from what the academy is teaching who Jesus is. And all of these things are ways in which we are still wrestling with who in the world is this person. This person that started this movement, this revolution, the reason why this church even exists, who was he? Really, who was he? And and have we ever stopped to really consider and think about that question? I'm going to propose to you that this is actually a question that we should be continually wrestling with. And all of that I just went through, personal experience, what your church teaches you, what the academy and what Stanford is teaching you at your religious courses. These are all welcome, informed perspectives that help shape and mold our understanding of who Jesus is. Let's go back to the first century and just take one particular thing that they were wrestling with, and then from that lesson, we can extrapolate to this day, how are we supposed to manage and deal with this? The primary issue that they were dealing with in the first century is the question of, was Jesus really a human being? Was Jesus really a human being? Now, that might seem like a very perplexing idea, but it's a very important question because back in that day, there was a growing movement of people that saw people, flesh, bones, the physical world, and they said, this is not good. By the way, have have any of you ever looked out into the world and seen how people act? And you go, this is not good. And if you've ever had that feeling, since you can understand why first century Christians were seeing, he says he's a Christian, she says she's a follower, but how they act and how they behave is not good. Now add the component that we are bodily beings, sensual beings, physical, sexual beings, add all that on top of that, and you start to ask the question, what were people actually doing in the first century? What were people doing in the 21st century with their bodies in that way? And then some people go, oh, yeah, this is so not good. So an idea began to arose in the first century that the physical body, the physicalness of it is not a good thing. And so they began to teach that that which is spirit, the spirit of Jesus, that's the good stuff. 
the, the stuff that's heavenly, the stuff that's out of this world. But the body stuff, mm-mm, that is not good. And so the teaching began to arise that maybe Jesus didn't really have a body. Maybe Jesus wasn't really human. Maybe he just seemed to be human because if he really was flesh, if he really was bones, if he really was human, if he really had all of this skin on him and all of that skin and the bones and the flesh and stuff is bad, well, then that kind of means that Jesus is bad and we think Jesus is perfect, Jesus is God, and so that can't be. And so Jesus just wasn't human at all. Are you tracking with the logic? If you see people behaving really badly, flesh behaving badly, you think Jesus is perfect, then there's no way that those two can be the same. Body bad, spirit good. Does this sound familiar for those of you who've studied like philosophy? Yeah, some of you already know about this. This is Plato's idea of the forms and ideas. His basic concept is this. There is this thing called a horse which you can touch, which you can feel, which you can smell. But that's not the real horse. The real horse is the idea or the form of the horse. It's, it's, if the horse went away, then the concept or the idea that I have in my head of the horse still exists. And by the way, the idea that I have in my head, the form of it, my imagination of the horse is actually better, more perfect than the physical thing. The idea that there is something good that is the perfect substance that is an idea that's a form That is what is good. But the body, this stuff, that falls apart, that hurts, that aches, that does things that I don't want it to do, that stuff, that can't be good. Body bad, spirit good. And so this whole idea, the separation of those two things, was really wrestling, these people were really struggling with this. And there was a group of people that arose in the first century in this beginning of this movement of Jesus and said, we really like Jesus. We follow him. He's amazing. He's beautiful. He's perfect. He is the eternal word. He has all those things and more. Therefore, there's no way he could have a body. So he must've been an apparition. He must've just seemed like he was human. It was some sort of an illusion, some sort of spiritual trick, because there's no way that he could have had a body. For those of you who are interested and a little geeky about this, this is a, there's a fancy theological word called doceticism. It actually comes from the Greek word dokeo, which means to seem or to appear. It's like some sort of illusion, but it isn't the real thing. There's lots of problems with this. In fact, the reason why we are not docetics to this particular day is because Christians in the first century realized that this is, not the, this is not what the teaching was. This is not who Jesus was. And there's a lot of theological problems. If Jesus didn't have a body, then he didn't feel any pain. If he didn't feel any pain, he didn't suffer. If he didn't suffer, then he you know, didn't atone for our sins. It just goes on and on. There's a lot of these particular problems. When 1 John writes his letter, when John writes 1 John, maybe he was a 1 John, I don't know. When John writes his letter, what we call 1 John, or writes this sermon, I want you to read this again and read the emphasis that John has in the beginning of this letter. We declare to you what was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have actually touched. Sorry, I didn't mean to freak out. We have touched this. We have seen it. We have felt it. 
And then later on in 1 John chapter 4, Beloved, do not believe every spirit. Here's the division, the spirit teaching something different. But test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you will know the spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh. Do you feel the emphasis? Like, does that really need to be said? Of course we know that Jesus is human. No, it doesn't isn't just simply obvious. These people were wrestling, and there was a group of people saying, there's no way Jesus could have been in a body. Because body's bad, spirit good. And this writer is saying, wrong. That spirit is false. The true nature of who Jesus is, is somebody who has come in the flesh. The Greek word for the word flesh is the word Sarks, and that's why this is called sarks. For those of you who know the word sarcophagus, a sarcophagus is a flesh mouth. Esophagus means to open your mouth and eat flesh. That's a place for a dead body. So my friends, this is the fundamental message for this opening teach. The faith, life, ministry, and way of Jesus is profoundly physical, sensual, material, and tangible. It is embodied faith. And for those of us who think, of course, doesn't everybody teach that? The reality is, I have a feeling that even in our current 21st century wrestling, there's still the challenge of people saying, but I don't know if it was really, but it's more about the spirit. It's more about something else. It's more about something otherly than it is about the body. But this teach, and this teach from 1 John is actually very consistent throughout the rest of the New Testament. This movement, this ministry, this life, who Jesus was, profoundly physical, sensual, material, and tangible. Now, what's the challenge? Well, it's everything else that people are concerned about. If it's physical, Paul actually uses that idea of physical to mean sinful nature or earthly behavior. It's contrary to God. He says, you are of the flesh, which means that you're doing things that are not good. Of the flesh meaning bad. So there is that challenge. And there is still the challenge that our bodies are, well, physical, sensual, material. We still have this challenge. But the reason why the movement of Jesus is therefore then central physical material is exactly that reason. If our bodies betray us at times, then what other way of redemption and rescue and hope is there but to redeem and restore this body? I found it summed up in this cartoon that I found while I was searching for all of this. It was uh, really beautiful. I like Plato's concept of the ideal good, that everything in life, whether it's objects or ideas, are imperfect copies of an ideal and perfect version. It tells you there's an ideal good to strive for, even in life's imperfect moments. Then he looks over with a perplexed look on his face. In the Platonic ideal of this moment, you'd be smiling as you listen to me. And he responds, in my Platonic ideal of this moment, you're not here. The reason why I love this cartoon so much is because I think we would all love, perhaps, the idea of Jesus being perfect in the, in the heavens, 
faith being perfect in the heavens, up here, ethereal, my own spiritual euphoria, having, going to a worship service, a conference, or some sort of experience, and just living in that moment and staying there and being there. But I love this cartoon because the reality is that's not where life is lived. That's not where life is actually fully lived. And one of the things that I get concerned about, this is my personal you know, venting now, is that as I see faith and religious movements move to the clouds, we end up creating a religion that is so heavenly minded is just no earthly good. And when the entire movement of Jesus and this way was fleshly, physical, tangible, you can feel it, and yet we kind of want to escape this world, there's a disconnect for me there. This faith that we profess, this faith that we follow, is absolutely physical. It's God concarnate. It's fleshly. It's tangible. Sorry, some of you. You. Yeah, okay. (laughs) Moving on. Sarks, my friends, for me means that the way of Jesus, this entire movement, is fleshy. And sometimes it's dirty, but it's physical, it's tangible, it's material, it's here, it's with you. It's what you see, it's what you smell, it's what you feel, it's what you touch. And actually, I would like to ask this question, it's kind of a rhetorical one, does any other faith actually exist? Really? Is there any other kind of faith? I've been informed by some study of neurology, and uh, there's some of you in this room that could probably explain this much better than I, but there are these things in your brain called mirror neurons. And the idea is that as you have a face, and I see that face, something happens in my brain that begins to reflect what it is that I'm seeing. There's a physicality to this relationship. It's not something that you can have in the exact same way over a digital platform. But when I am physically present with you, when I feel a handshake or a hug, when I get a pat on the back, when I see your eyes and your face, when that happens, something happens to me that is being reflected as we are physically in the same space together. Now, all of you know this because there are companies in this world that are brilliant at manipulating your mirror neurons, and this is one of them. Yes? How many of you have ever been to a Pixar movie and just cried your eyes out? Because they are brilliant at this. And one of the movies that was most brilliant was this movie, Wally, because there was virtually zero dialogue. It was all about expression and emotion, movement, And what they were doing is they were moving off of, you see something. And when you see it, you feel it. There's an emotion that's connected with the physicality and the materialness of that experience. Another reason why I don't know if there's any other kind of faith, and the other reason why this is so important, is because people have actually written on the benefits of church and the benefits of church attendance. Your health is actually better. You actually live longer. You have low blood pressure. You actually boost your immune system. You can live longer by going to church, which reminds me or tells me that we really actually need to add to this. We inspire people to live in the way of Jesus and to live longer. That's the reason why you come to church. So part of what this means for me, if the movement of Jesus and the way of Jesus is physical, it's tangible, it's material, it's sensual, it means that there is actually a value, not only just in the health benefits, which is connected with relationships, which is connected with better choices, peer, positive peer pressure, all sorts of things. You can read the articles. They're, they're pretty informative and, and kind of interesting. But this means that I don't think you understand how important it is that you show up every week. 
I don't think you understand how important it is. When you walk in the room, something happens here. There's a physicality to what happens here. When you give a handshake to somebody, when you smile at somebody, when you welcome somebody, when you do that action, something happens. Your attendance is so critical to the thriving and to the living and to the experience of this movement. Now, some of you are going to think cynically and rightfully so. Hey, you're just a pastor trying to get people to come to church and sit in the pews. And yes, I totally get that that's part. Yes, I admit that that's exactly what I'm trying to do. Full confession. I want you to attend church more. But this is not what I'm talking about. I don't care where you go. You could show up at somebody's house. You could meet somebody for coffee. You could gather in a small group in a dormitory. You could meet people in a classroom. When I say attend church, I mean the way of Jesus, the movement of Jesus is physical, tangible, sensual, material. And when you show up with one another, something happens there. And something about the love, the teachings, the grace, the mercy, the welcome happens only in that physical space. So yeah, no question. I am a pastor asking you to attend church more, but I don't care if you do it here or if you do it at your home or if you do it at the coffee shop, wherever. Show up with one another. This movement is physical. I have a Wednesday night group that I attend, and I tell you, something happens to me that is so radically different. I lose my mind because these people are so engaged and excited. They ask questions when we show up at Friday nights and my daughter's running around, something happens to me when I hear the voices of the children, when I hear the laughter of my friends, when I'm laughing together and sharing and asking questions and watching facial features. Something happens in the room physically when that occurs. Living the way of Jesus, my friends, is fleshly. Which means then our theology and the ideas that we have about Jesus must also be fleshly. And the writer of 1 John is going to continue. Those who say, I love God and hate their brother or sister are liars. For those who do not love a brother or sister whom they have seen cannot love God whom they have not seen. The commandment we have from him is this. Those who love God must also love their brothers and sisters also. And again, this is an author who's trying to get at the core thing. Well, if Jesus was uh, ethereal, if Jesus was an idea, if Jesus, the spirit of Jesus is what's important, then what's important in our faith is me connecting with the spirit. This non-fleshly thing. No, this author is saying that is not actually true. In fact, if you think that your relationship with God is really, really good, but you hate one another and you don't want to see one another, you don't care for one another, you don't have compassion for one another, you don't have mercy for one another, you have a false faith because Jesus was also in the flesh. He came here in the flesh. So my friends, the teach is this. Sarks, pay attention to the flesh. If you are a follower of Jesus, if you claim to love this God, you are going to pay attention to flesh. How does your body actually act in this faith? How do you show up for one another? How do you extend mercy to one another? How do you open your home to one another? How do you sit down and have coffee with one another? How do you help one another? When you visit one another, when you pray for one another, you are physically showing up. You are paying attention to the flesh. From a theology standpoint, hey, this is great. There's people that like to argue from an apologetic standpoint. God exists, and I will give you the 17,000 reasons for why that's philosophically true. In this particular teaching, in this particular way, the way that Jesus wants it, if God exists, I want to know where, with whom. 
where has God shown up? Maybe it was an invitation when you were depressed and lonely and set aside. Maybe you felt like an outcast and somebody welcomed you in. So if God exists, that's what I want to know. I want to know where and with who. I love this phrase that gets uh, very, very popular, right? The Bible is inspired, and we want to argue very, very vehemently about what this text is. But I want to ask this question. What has it inspired? If you read that text, and it's not actually exemplifying grace and mercy and love and compassion and welcome, is it really inspired? Do I want to argue the idea, the form, the concept, the thing that exists up here? Or do I want to put it in flesh and say, this is what it has inspired me to do? This is what it has inspired a community of people to do. Sarks, the way of Jesus is fleshly. In summary, it fell over. Here's what I'm going to suggest. Sarks is the difference between this And this. <laughs> I love that scene because there is something different from seeing a hologram to seeing the real thing. There is a difference between this, which is a systematized theology about who God is, and this. There's no systematic theology here. It's a feeling. It's a touching. And everybody, please thank Jesse Rodriguez because there is a huge difference between what you see here. Oh, I put it here. And that. Sorry about this one, Jesse. That's probably me because I rolled it over. I broke it. I broke the flesh. <laughs> there is a huge difference between just having an idea, a concept, a theory, and being able to feel and touch. Go ahead, pass it around. Feel and touch. I was kind of entitling, I was working with the title that, you know, Jesus is my 3D printer, but I wasn't quite sure if that was going to work out or not. <laughs> Jesse, thank you so much. This is wonderful. So this is my meme, I suppose, if I were to sum it up. If you believed it, then you should have put some flesh on it. <laughs> if, <laughs> so, <laughs> okay, somebody tell me afterwards if that was really bad and I will strike it from the podcast. <laughs> but that's just what I came up with. If you believed it, then you should have put some flesh on it. My friends, don't take pictures of that. No, I don't want that on social, I don't want that on social media. It's going to be bad. Uh, all of our values, my friends, rescue, reputation, resurrection, reconciliation, and love, yes, they are ideas. But our hope, the reason why ex we exist, is because we want reconciliation and rescue to actually happen with people with names. And we show up for them. We care for them. We sit down. We help relationships get restored and healed. This way is fleshy. And it's hard. And it's difficult and it's challenging, but it's in the flesh. 
and you embody it. And that's what this letter in the very opening portions is calling us to. There are some that are still going to want the Jesus that just makes me feel good on the inside, that are still going to want the Jesus that connects me with the God up in heaven, that is still going to want the Jesus that is all about the spiritual and, and not having to worry about the cares of this world. But this teach encourages us and challenges us. That's not what Jesus was doing. And if you read the Gospels and you read the story, he was very fleshy, got down and dirty with people, literally in blood. This movement is very fleshy, and I would encourage you, uh, encourage myself to consider that if you are going to be a follower of Jesus, you're going to put some flesh on it, and you're going to figure out how is this love embodied? How is mercy now embodied? How is reconciliation and atonement embodied? How is worship embodied? How is all of that put in flesh? Amen? All right. God, thank you for coming in the flesh and for being physical. And I pray that as you have done so, so may we also to continually redeem and work to restore and rescue these bones, these flesh, this skin, these sinews, our minds, our souls. Continue to do that in us and through us as we continually work hard to figure out how to live and walk in your way. And I pray this in your name. Everybody said, amen. Thanks, friends.